For our study this evening, we're going to be looking at the same verse to which we looked last Wednesday evening, and that's found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. We'll be considering the question, who is Antichrist? In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, the Apostle John writes, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Our Father, we come before thee in the recognition that if we are to learn thy truth, if we are to understand thy word, that it must be through thy grace and by the inward work of thy Holy Spirit. And yet, our Father, thou hast given us thy truth, and we are to look therein, and we prayerfully do so and ask for thy help and blessing as we engage in this study. We realize, Father, that we are in difficult times in this country and in this world spiritually, and yet we know this is not something that's new. And so we ask for thy grace and the work of thy Spirit in our hearts, and that the name of thy Holy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be magnified, and thy people would be instructed and receive thy truth aright, and that thy name would be glorified. And for this we'll thank thee in the holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Who is Antichrist? What purpose is involved? And how does this relate to the last time? That's our study tonight as we will look into this verse again. There's so much fanciful teaching upon this subject that many ears have been tickled for a long, long time. And uh, there are those who look for a world ruler, a political type Antichrist, and they look for him in various individuals, and many of them have been thought to have been this political Antichrist. Even in World War II, they thought Hitler was maybe the Antichrist, or Mussolini maybe the Antichrist. I remember when we were in the dispensational system over some 50 years ago, I remember that uh, it was taught that Henry Kissinger, poor old Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State at the time, they thought that he was the Antichrist. And so a lot of fanciful things are going. Of course, it turns the attention of people to this world and the things that are happening in it and uh, foreign to what the Scripture teaches. But a lot of times world events are made to fit certain things in Scripture, whether they do so or not, and that's been the case. That's why many have become disillusioned with the dispensational premillennial system. And uh, there have been so many things so long, and of course there are new ones now, I'm sure. A lot of them I don't know about, I even think that there were those who thought that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. 
And so it's incredible, uh, the things that, of course, have been taught. But we want to look and consider if John, in his writings, identifies what he's talking about. If we find it in his writings, and uh, I believe we will do so, and of course we find it in other places, in applications such as we shall make reference to, though we're not dealing with the particular passage in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So we want to look for our answer first from John to answer the question, who is Antichrist? Was John talking about something that was yet to come in the future from his time? Or was he showing that something was in fulfillment that had been expected? I do believe it's the latter. It's important to say Again, in our introduction, that the ground upon which the adversary of souls makes his warfare is the ground of the gospel. When you read the New Testament scriptures, you read consistently that they knew that apostasy was coming. They knew there was massive warfare. A lot of false doctrines would arise. They arose relatively early. To war against the gospel of the Son of God. John, of course, on the Isle of Patmos was given the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Revelation chapter 12, he has the figure of the dragon. And we know who the dragon is identified as. It's that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. And yet he's in the picture of a dragon in Revelation chapter 12. Out of that dragon's mouth proceeds a flood. That flood is for the purpose of consuming the woman who is in the wilderness. The woman who is in the wilderness is the church, the regenerate church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The flood comes out of the mouth of the dragon after the woman to endeavor to swallow her up which obviously is speaking of false doctrine and the falsities that would arise. It's a very serious matter, of course. And uh, the woman, though, was protected. She was kept from that malicious work of the adversary. But it depicts the falsity of the things that would come and war against the truth of Christ. And when you read the apostles you find out that their warfare was to uphold, sustain, and defend the gospel of the Son of God. Jude writes in the third verse of his epistle, Beloved, when I gave all the diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful that we write unto you and that you earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. There are certain men crept in unawares, those men would bring false things, of course. John is very clear about his teaching concerning the Antichrist. And uh, this anti-Christian power does all he can to subvert the gospel of the Son of God, to adulterate it, to obliterate it, 
if he can. It's the most serious warfare that takes place. And so there's a most serious battle that's involved. And every believer is involved in this battle. What takes place in this battle does not simply involve world events. It involves eternity. It involves eternal souls. And in, it involves the very means that God chose to save those whom he calls by his gospel. And the greatest danger for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not persecution that comes from without. That was the first thing the adversary brought against the churches of Christ. He brought persecution. That only purged them. So he turned his tactic to another way. And that was to bring as much false doctrine and false teaching as he could. To pervert the very gospel of the Son of God. And there are two things to clearly say as we here enter this study. The one thing does not rule out the other. The first is that the battle is the Lord's. That's something that's not easy sometimes to comprehend. It's in his hands. The battle is the Lord's. And he, as John knew well, had declared that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, his genuine church. There is, of course, a harlot that pretends to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, which has been called the masterpiece of Satan that has arisen, of course, in the world. But the battle is the Lord's. He has won. He is winning. And he shall win. And therefore, all who are truly in Christ, all who are truly saved by God's wondrous grace, all who've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light in Christ are winners as well. Thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. <laughs> if I thought for a minute that the battle was in my hands, I would despair. I would despair. But the great encouragement is that the battle is the Lord's. A soldier in this warfare? Yes. Charged to bear hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? Yes. But the battle is the Lord's. The battle is in the hands of the sovereign Savior who possesses all power in heaven and in earth. The second thing is that we're still in this battle. We're in this battle. It's not over for us. It's very real. It's very dangerous. It's a very real battle. So that we cannot say this has nothing to do with us. It does. 
We can't just go on our way and neglect this most serious warfare. To neglect the things of God is a very dangerous thing, as we learn in the second chapter of Hebrews. So if you are insensible of this warfare, if it has no real effect upon your heart and mind, then there has to come the question of wondering if you're in the kingdom of God. Because there is conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And this conflict will be in the world until our Lord comes the second time. You're in a battle to overcome the world and its ways. Sometimes you can get a little too close to it. And we're in a battle to overcome the wicked one who is the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. These things come together. And if truly in Christ and consciously depending upon him to keep and sustain and enable you to overcome through faith, you're going to win if he is your sovereign indeed, if he is your Lord indeed, if his salvation is known, received, comprehended by you. Just as in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, they overcame him by the word of the Lord, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. So, Antichrist and the last time, in 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. John was not looking for something future. It was already there in his writing. When a word, of course, is prefixed by anti, it generally means to be against something or opposed to something. If you have a warfare and uh, there are enemy planes, you hope to have anti-aircraft missiles to take care of those planes. If you have... A snake bite that's venomous, you hope to find some antitoxin that will overcome that snake bite. If you have bacteria in your body that is causing you some real problems, an infection, you need an antibiotic. So most of the time that word anti means to be against. And in its most general use, biblically, it could mean anything or anybody who is an opponent to Christ and the truth that is in him, that's made known in the gospel, in scripture. It's a principle that operates some way and in some form 
and in everyone who is not positively for Christ. Who says to us in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. John's use of Antichrist, though, is in its most sinister form. And we can call it its most dangerous form. This is a subtle attack. This attack is not coming from the world. This is an attack uh, that comes in close proximity to the kingdom of God. It arises in the church itself, which is very solemn. Related to this, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson wrote, Anti means substitution or opposition, but both ideas are identical in the word antichristos. Meaning by identical, that by substituting the false for the true, while the false claims to be the true, is the most subtle means of opposing the truth of Christ. The most dangerous means is a church claiming to be a church that takes the name of Christ, that claims to be the very bride of Christ, but is a harlot. That's Satan's masterpiece as has been called. Whatever changes or substitutes for or modifies the truth of the gospel actually opposes the gospel and has behind it the satanic purpose to destroy the gospel. The apostles were very vehement in the defense of the gospel. They didn't look at everybody who professed as genuine. They didn't look at everybody who used, used the name of Jesus Christ as genuine. They looked at those who subverted the gospel. If they added to the grace of Christ, if they added works to it, the apostle Paul says, let him be accursed. They didn't play around with the gospel as so many do, thinking, well, everybody almost must be okay. It's not true. There's a subtle warfare. It rises up among those who profess to be Christians. In John's use, John alone, in his writings, uses the word antichrist. In John's use, there is an opposing spirit that he shows between or behind the many antichrists who are the agents of this diabolical opposition. Again, in First uh, John 2.18, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know it is the last time. In First uh, John chapter 2, and uh, in verse 22, he writes, Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, he writes, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. 
And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever you've heard that it should come. And even now already is it in the world. In his second epistle, and in verse 7 of that epistle, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Well, we know one thing for sure. Antichrist, biblically, is in the realm of religion, which is very clear, of course, in the writings of the Apostle John. And uh, very importantly, in John's day, the form of this opposition was in the denial of the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless we have a Savior who is man as well as God, we don't have a Savior. And of course, in the writings of John, you find him emphasizing, as in John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. You hear him writing in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we've handled the word of life. And uh, so he's very clear to teach that Jesus Christ is in the, came, came in the flesh and that to deny that is antichrist. It's to oppose him. The form of that has changed. It takes many forms throughout this era since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection and ascension. It takes various forms, different forms, including the denial of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ that has come massively in liberal Christianity and other ways that his truth or his gospel is perverted or denied. It may come in, uh, in the substitution of the exclusive headship and authority of Christ alone as the only head of his church. A usurpation that would come, for instance, in one who's called the vicar of Christ, one who's supposed to be as Christ, one who in the Roman Catholic system has literally been called another God on earth. The words of blasphemy and other things that we won't go into. It could be in claimed revelation apart from the scriptures as in the cults. Or those who claim that God now speaks directly to them and they bring the message they say that's authoritative and yet it can contradict the scriptures. The canon of Scripture is complete. God has spoken in finality in His Son, as in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. What is not according to this word is not according to truth. That's why Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 declares to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There are those in what we call the charismatic movement who claim to be apostles, and prophets that they get direct revelation from God. It's the most dangerous thing. We have God speaking in his word. This is God's communication. 
until the second appearing of our Lord. This is all the communication he's going to give. If the church was to be looking for some kind of worldwide political ruler, termed the Antichrist, rather strange that that was not in the writings of those who recall the early church fathers. We have uh, one who was named Polycarp, who was a disciple, actually of John the Apostle. He simply quoted from John. Whosoever doth not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. What about its association with the last time? Little children, it is the last time. And as you've heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists. Whereby we know that it is the last time. John says that by the apostasy there's a falling away. There's an apostasy that was even taking place. In the days of John. And the arising of the spirit of Antichrist. He called this the spirit of Antichrist. By the arising of the spirit of Antichrist. Through the many Antichrist. He sees a fulfillment in this. He sees a fulfillment of the prediction. Already in his day. And that gives him the knowledge that Antichrist, the arising of the spirit of Antichrist, manifested through the many Antichrists who are under this diabolical power, that it signifies we're in the last time, whereby we know that it is the last time. He deduces, by divine inspiration, by the way, that this signifies being in the last time which extends, we know, of course, to the second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and the passing of the world, as he just told us in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The world's going to pass away. Then he says it is the last time. Thus, with the last time having come, nothing left to be fulfilled before the second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes when he does as a thief in the night. No one knows the times or the seasons. Scripture is very, very clear on that matter. The church in every period of world history is to keep its eyes looking for him, waiting for him. Oh, yes, we do hope he comes in our lifetime. Oh, that he would come this night before even the completion of this message and this study. We're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not looking for a coming world ruler termed Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. 
The Apostle John doesn't in his writing say, we're looking for this Antichrist to come. No, no. Just the opposite. He turns our eyes only to look unto and for the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. He writes in the third chapter, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So John treats of the coming of Antichrist as being fulfilled in what is taking place in his day. And of course, it's not our purpose, as stated earlier, to enter upon an exposition of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians will briefly say some things. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 teaches that in a day of great apostasy, that there will arise the man of sin. And the Apostle Paul says what holds that back, there is something that holds that back. He doesn't name it. But there was something that was holding back the manifestation of the man of sin. Uh, when I was in the dispensational system, the teaching totally made up was this means that the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the world. You do remember that? <laughs> so, and what inconsistencies were involved in that? Then they taught there's going to be this seven-year period of tribulation. That's a symbolic, important number in the book of Revelation. But that's literalized to a seven-year period. And... The question is, if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world before that second, or that seven-year period, then why are they teaching that a massive number of people would be converted during that time? How do people get converted without the Holy Spirit? But if, as we know was the case historically, there was something preventing that taking place. It was the presence of imperial Rome. If imperial Rome had been mentioned, it would have put the believers in great danger. And then out of this massive apostasy, which did take place, in that period of time, there would arise one who would claim to be God on earth, taking the place of the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And that's the Pope of Rome. But, as I say, it's not our purpose to expound upon Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I believe it has a further application. But I do believe the reformers who recognized that. 
hit the mark pretty well. The Lord Jesus Christ had prophesied and warned of a great apostasy which would arise to war against him and his gospel and his chosen, and by which many who had professed faith in him would be deceived. In uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, which teaches of the destruction of Jerusalem and something, things that would take place thereafter and projects forth to the second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 5 the Lord Jesus says many shall come in my name saying I am Christ and shall deceive many he uh, goes on in Matthew chapter 24 verses 11 and 12 and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many because of iniquity because iniquity shall abound the love of many shall wax cold he is predicting many to be deceived and then in verse 24 of Matthew 24 for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect these deceived ones who would be led away from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ they would constitute the apostasy that there would be such a falling away to characterize the last days, of course, was clearly taught and revealed through the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter even taught there would be scoffers in Second Peter 3, scoffers who would come in the last days. And, of course, he was in the last days. Those last days extend to the second appearing of Christ. John says that apostasy was even being fulfilled when he wrote by the arising then of the spirit of Antichrist already taking place. Those who would turn from the one gospel God gave, the gospel that was established through apostolic preaching and that they would thus depart from the saints. The next verse says they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that they were not of us. These were apostates. These were those who denied the gospel and the truth as it is, or perverted it, or subverted it, and adopted another gospel, which is not the gospel at all. It's strongly implied from Scripture that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, there's not going to be a massive amount of people that are his on the earth. That's why that question haunts me that the Lord Jesus asked in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? There are those who say, 
And I read it so. Well, that means that kind of faith that the woman had going against the judge until she got her way. But that's not what it says. It says, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. It's a solemn thing. At any one time, except at sporadic periods, at any one time, there are few that enter into the kingdom of God in truth, through Christ, by the cross. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the life, uh, is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There's a lot of profession. There's a lot of religion. But few there be that enter in at the straight gate. Few there be that walk the path of life in truth. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, I think we may deal with this somewhat Sunday afternoon. When satanic deception... was massive in the world before the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension and the sending forth of the Holy Spirit and the gospel to the nations. Satan bound from being able to stop that gospel from going forth who had deceived the nations before the coming of Christ. Before Christ comes, there will come a little season again when he will deceive the nations as he did, obviously, before the coming of Christ. That's a solemn thing, really. We're taught in Scripture. Again, this doesn't mean there won't be a lot of profession and a lot of religion, but few who truly know him, who truly belong to him alone and are set apart unto him. who will persevere, who will overcome the wicked one, who will overcome the world, of which we can get a little bit too close, very dangerously so. I think we likely live in the most spiritually dangerous period of world history, at least it is in my history, in the world, a solemn time in which we live. There are more avenues now for satanic movement and deception than ever there has been. More media for it. More ways for the devil to work and deceive and blind and get people's heart on this world. So, what do we do? What do we do? We maintain confidence in Christ. We maintain a vigilance upon our own souls and for one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 
We overcome by the very same faith with which we began. The book of Hebrews over and over tells us we're to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Always looking to, trusting in our Lord, not in ourselves. We're the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is not in ourselves to be able to keep ourselves. It's in him to keep us and enable us to overcome. What's, uh, John writes about this in 1 John 5. Whatsoever is born of God, truly born of him, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And in this we must discern the true God-opposing nature of the world. The fallen world. Be very religious, but oppose God. And oppose the truth. And oppose his gospel as it is in scripture. Matter of fact, I dare say. If you talk to those who profess to be Christians. It would likely be very illuminating if you would simply ask them the question. Could you tell me the gospel you believe? I think that would be very illuminating. Don't you? Could you explain to me the gospel you believe? Might give an open door to give forth the true gospel that God has given in his word. We only do this as we continually look to and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ to his word, to his church, which is to be and maintain the truth as the pillar and ground of the truth and defend the very gospel he gave in his word. We do this by continuing our testimony of Christ in the world and our crucifixion to it by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. It's Revelation 12, verse 11. And we receive and we trust the word of God. We rely upon its testimony that God himself will not allow his chosen to be taken away and perish a massive deception but not to the elect if it were possible the elect would be deceived remember, remember the Lord Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it he will present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle there will come that incredible purpose of God fulfilled when Christ comes in the glorious marriage union of God and man together forever which is wondrous the Lord keeps his own
the same time, we're to be very conscious of a very real warfare, putting us upon a continual and careful watch, leading us to consistently use the means God has appointed for our keeping, and believing that Satan will attempt in any way he can to deceive us by distorting the gospel, by disturbing us as much as he can over our sinful past lives, by anything he can. The Lord Jesus Christ has not given us these things in his word so that we'll be scared but so we'll be cautious and we'll keep up our guard he's warned us about that to be vigilant to be watchful watch be careful we are to be very very careful his promise to us is that he himself will keep us and present us to himself. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 5. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We're in his hands. The salvation's of God. It's not of man. It's of his will, not of the will of man. It's in the sovereign hands of the Lord of all glory, who is exalted above all. And he defeated the adversary at the cross. He gives us his word to guide. And we're to maintain the blessed hope. Looking for our Lord, which if it be in us in truth, will enable us to pursue holiness. Belonging unto him alone. May the Lord bless his word to your heart and mind.